since we've moved here to Idaho. Our principal, Brandy, has given us a book. Um, usually there's a couple books she gives us. One more self-help and one more for classroom management. Um, and this year she gave us a book that was called this year she gave us a book that was called Attitude. It's a Choice by Sam Glenn. I didn't have time to read it, but with the, with the title Attitude is a Choice, I kept the cover of that book on my um, desk. Okay, Kim, I stole your notes. Do you want them to give me my notes? <laughs> So what happened was, um, here's this title that when I set up my computer, when I took role, I would have to look and see. Now, um, I have made a lot, I have done a lot of things. I've taught a lot of kids and a lot of youth, um, many jobs along that line. But I want to tell you that teaching elementary art to over 650 kids, preschool, three-year-olds, through fifth grade, is challenging. And I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to be that art teacher that you heard in the hallway because for the 900th time that day, she has said, um, please, can I have your attention? Or, um, look this way. Or, please be quiet so I can actually teach. You see, when you have that group that's so wide, you have to figure out how you're going to teach their age group at their level so that, um, so that they are able to learn. And my overall picture is that I wanted them not just to learn or be a better drawer. It has nothing to do with their ability. It has to do with them being creatively positive about who they are and expressing themselves that way. So I realized very quickly that it was going to be a very long year doing this that I had never done before if I didn't start choosing to let things go. So I could choose grace for them, or I could hold them to the law. Holding to the law or choosing grace and let them grow the way they needed to. Well, I chose grace. I chose, because I can, the attitude to say these are children who need taught, and they need taught to be able to have the right behaviors. So, the challenge of the attitude and this book 
that I couldn't read all year. I've been able to read now that the COVID-19 has stopped everything in place and I have a quiet classroom. So during the first week or so of, of where we as teachers go to school and the children are, long, are distanced, which teaching art distance is kind of fun, um, I had time to read about this, read this book, and it was very thought-provoking. And it helped me to read it more, and I've already passed it on to someone that I'm hoping that will be a blessing to them. Because so much of who we are and the way we act and react is 100% based upon our attitude, not anybody else's choices, not anybody else's words, not anybody else's stuff. It is our attitude. Yeah, maybe their stuff is affecting us, but we choose it. So um, years ago, when we lived in Mesa, Arizona, we had, well, we still have a friend, Mr. Tom. He's a pilot. And uh, Tom is a very serious guy about planes and flying. And uh, for those of you who were on the trip with us, just know that having Tom in an airplane in the back of this plane, <laughs> whenever it was supposed to be a simple flight, and it comes down to the fact that we are almost 24 hours later still only in Texas, to look at our tickets to find out we were flying purgatory airlines, my response was, we're not even Catholic. Why are we in purgatory airlines? To Miss Laurel, who was our team leader, and we all had a good laugh. But Tom brought some things to our Sunday school class that we would never have done. And one of the things that he brought and taught us one day was that the attitude of a plane matters more than the altitude. The attitude of a plane is whether or not it is level and steady. That's why some of the plane crashes, you can crash into the ocean and people still walk away. Because the attitude of the plane was correct even when it was crashing. So we had heroes of that that did that landed that way. If your attitude is nosediving and stinky, so is the plane. If your attitude, which when a plane flies, the attitude isn't level but slightly up, if you keep your attitude up, you will be able to fly too. That had lots of meaning. And I'm telling you that that word picture that he gave us on that Sunday morning has stuck with me 20 years later. How is my attitude? Am I going to crash? Or am I going to be able to walk away? So there's a lot of stuff in this COVID there was a period of time that I was kind of more afraid to leave my house. It was scary times because all of this stuff that you hear. So all I, it wasn't that I was afraid of getting sick, but if I had to go out, what was I bringing home? 
I really wanted this little case to just wipe, step in and clean me off before I left, before I came in the house, because I didn't want to expose my family to what I might breathe. There are kids that I see in the store, this little girl with tears running down her face this week. She said, but Miss Lucy, I really need your hug. And I said, Miss Maisie, I do too. But I've been out and about, and if I have the, the virus on me and I hug you and give it to you, I can't deal with that. So we have to do what everybody has felt that is correct at this time. So I'm just saying I'm not okay with all of this. I'm of the belief that if you get and receive 10 hugs a day, you're healthier. That is a whole line of thought, and I kind of agree with that. One of the quotes from this book came from an Australian neurologist psychologist. His name was Victor Frankl. Victor Frankl was born early 1900s, and uh, he died in 1997. Um, he was quite old. But he was a Holocaust survivor. And he's most famous for his work that said his main job in life was not was bringing meaning to life. He needed to know his meaning to life. What mattered, why he mattered. And, and helping other people to learn why they matter, why their life actually matters in this world. And from a young student, teenage years, he started going to medical school, and they put him in a place having to deal with women who were suicidal. And he looked and studied and started, started learning all of the stuff in his mind about how your attitude and finding the meaning in your life matters. And his most famous quote is this. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. Everything can be taken away from a man. Everything. As I was looking for scriptures to go with this today, it falls off my ear now. The tech people are trying to help me. Um, as I was looking in the scriptures today, I found many flawed examples of people's attitude in the scripture. You know, it started with Adam and Eve. And then uh, others that just popped in my mind was Moses and Saul. You know, Moses did so much right. But his anger and his attitude against the people who he loved and whom he stood between God and them so that God wouldn't wipe them out, his attitude on one day made him smack a rock, which took God's blessing out of it. 
and he had to pay the consequences. We pay consequences for our actions and our attitude, but God still used him, and God still uses us. It is a growing time, and then there are those that pop right in my mind of positive attitudes. Esther, for such a time as this. <laughs> Ruth, where you go, I'll go. Who you serve, I'll serve. Their attitudes were great, but in line with Dr. Frankel, I think of Job. Now, Job, when you read in chapter 1, you read all the things that he had and all the things that he was losing. And I'll start reading in Job chapter 1 at verse 19. Suddenly a powerful wind swept from the wilderness and hit him, hit his house on all sides. The house collapsed and all of your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up, he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Can you imagine? This person just came to Job to tell him, all of his livestock was dead or ran away or stolen. All of his family in his house, the wind made it collapse. We've seen the damage tornadoes can do here um, just recently, not in Idaho, but in the United States. But his first response was, I came into this world naked and I'm leaving naked. I'm not taking anything with me. It's God's choice. What an attitude. I would be healthier and probably happier if I remember to have that attitude when things don't go my way. Dr. Frankel and Job both lived a life where it was very clear that everything can be taken away. But we choose our attitudes. We learn from these heroes that we don't have to be perfect. We just need to be honest with ourselves and God. King David was one of the Old Testament heroes that gives me hope. David, like Joseph and Samuel, started to hear God's voice at a very young age, directing him where he needed to be, what he needed to do. They made mistakes. They couldn't understand everything. You know, Joseph's brothers, because of him telling the dreams he wasn't understanding, sold him into slavery. And yet, if they had not, he would not have been put in the place that he was to save God's people. We don't have to understand what God is doing to keep stepping one step at a time in what he's told us to do. You know, like Samuel. 
when God was speaking to him as a young child, he said, just listen for it. Just say, I am here. You know, David, you might call him a precocious child. His siblings didn't like him that much either. In fact, when he obeyed his father, Jesse, and took the food pack to his brothers when they saw him, they weren't pleased. They said, oh, you're, where are the sheep? Who's taking care of them? You're just here because it's a battle. And you like the, that excitement. You know, I think David probably did like that excitement. I don't know too many young men who would not like spears and swords and things like that. But that wasn't the choice that God had given to David. And David wasn't using those things. He was just flat offended. He was offended that this big ape of a man, this giant, had the gall, had the nerve to go halfway and continue to yell at God's people and call them bad names and do bad things and say bad things about God. Now David was just flat offended about that. And because he was precocious, because he had enough self-confidence, because he had faced other battles and won because of God, said, uh-uh, this isn't happening in my place. So if you look up in second in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it kind of starts after David has seen them the first time and their brothers have said, go home. But he didn't because these men that were listening actually ran back and told Saul, hey, there's this kid out there. This, this kid, this kid is saying he wants to fight Goliath. Well, you know, as a king, Saul's reply was this. Don't be ridiculous. I always read in the New Living Translation today. That's what I will read at verse 33. They interpret it. They made it this way. David told Saul, I'll go fight. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There is no way that you can fight a Philistine and possibly win. You are only a boy, and he has been a man since his youth. But David persisted. I have been taking care of father's sheep and goats, he said. When the lion or a bear came to steal the lamb of the flock, I went after it with a club, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. If the animals turned on me, I watched it. I caught it by the jaw and clubbed it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I will do this to this pagan, Philistine, too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. That's pretty cheeky of this young boy, isn't it? Very confident. Not in his ability. He did these things, but with God's deliverance. 
with God giving him the tools that he needed. God was ahead. David was in training. Saul finally consented. I'm going on in the last half of 37. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took one step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such a thing before. I can't wear these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took all of them off. He picked up five smooth stones from the stream and put them in his shepherd's bag. Then, armed with only his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistines. You see, David knew the tools of his trade that he had been trained in. Having a big set of armor on him, he couldn't even move. For us in our ministry, because it's good for somebody else to do, doesn't mean that's what we are supposed to do. What tools did God put in your tool belt? Please use them. Don't think that you have to pull from this person or this person. Because that's not what God has for you. If God needed you to use a sword, he would have been having sword fighting contests with Mr. David. He did not. He needed a slingshot. He used a sword. He knew how to. Later, it wasn't his sword even. Goliath walked towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him. See, the shield was so big, Goliath didn't even hold it. Somebody else's job was to carry it. Sneering with contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed David by names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come at me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of, he of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give your, the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God here in, in Israel. And everyone assembled there, assembled here, will know that the Lord rescues his people but not with a sword or a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. You see, David knew. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to cut off your head, and your men will be fed to the birds. Not because I am David, 
but because you defied my God, and the God of Israel will defend his people. You guys need to know, when your times are deep and dark, you have a deliverance. It's not up to you, and it's not even your tools. All you got to do is give up to him and listen for what he's telling you and receive who he's sending to you. You see, God delivered Goliath because David had his attitude in check. David knew his tools. David knew his voice. And David's attitude wasn't, I'm all this in a bag of chips. David's attitude is, my God is all of this. And you defy him. How dare you? How dare you defy him? You and I both face a lot of big giants in the past, and we will still in the future, because that seems the way of the world. One of the memories and the highlight of serving God that I have took place in Alaska. Take you on this little trip to the little fishing village of Cordova and its nearest neighbor, neighbor Valdez. Um, the youth get together and have different competitions every year. And the youth we're getting together in Valdez, and Rick was one of the speakers. He was going to be the speaker on Saturday night, I believe. And I was able to, my, for my schedule and the ferry schedule, be able to go be a chaperone that day. So I was able to go be a chaperone. When we got there, um, we had taken enough boys um, to have a boys basketball team. And all the big schools from all around Alaska, they all had teams too, all the big churches. So the big churches had their teams and we had some. And we didn't have enough girls to outfit a whole team. And neither did Juno. So Juno's girls said, I really want to play. And while they're at their booth, they said, well, if Cordova and Juno get together and you find somebody who will coach you, you can be a team. So Emma and Victoria Romhilt, they both came to me and they said, Miss Lucy, Miss Lucy, will you be our coach? Well, I said, sure, that sounds like fun. So I became the coach to the volleyball team. And uh, Emily and Victoria knew how to play. The others did not. <laughs> but we decided we were going to have a ball. And we were just going to play to the best of our abilities, and we were going to have fun. And we did. And we won the first couple games. And then, da 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 They had this church group from Anchorage of Samoyan girls. From Samoyan? Uh-oh, I'm saying it wrong. Sorry. I'm telling you, these girls were monstrous. They were huge. 
And they were annihilating everybody that day. And when we played them, I'm telling you, we just wanted to get off the court. It was painful on the court and off. And uh, we had fun. And I cheered every bit of cheering that I could do. And it was a double elimination. So we got through our loss. And then we went to the loser's bracket. And we kept winning. And we won all the other games. So that then we were able to play in the playoffs. So here's the finals. Our boys team in basketball. Rick coached them. Actually, Mikey Riamico coached them, and Rick cheered them from the sidelines. Him and the kids, young Will Romhilt, making amazing shots, made it also into the finals. So our little town, our little fishing village, had teams in both of the major team sports in our finals. So here we are, and we had played so many games, the girls were exhausted. We had 30 minutes break before finals. And we are laid out on the court. And I don't remember who it was that said what we probably all were thinking, but do we even have to play? See the bruises that we have from already? being with them, and we kind of laughed, and then I talked about David and David's attitude as he stood up and went on that day before the Giants, and they laughed and said, well, we know we're playing the team of Giants because we didn't have, I was like one of the tallest ones, and I'm not that tall on our team. And uh, I said, but here's the deal. All we do is our best. And God has the rest. And let's have fun and play every point the best we can. And early on in the first game of that match, the littlest girl, little Regine, seventh grader of uh, from. Philippine heritage, she's teeny. I don't know what made her step in front of the ball, but she did. And it hit her somewhere on her body, and the ball went forward, and she slid back a good five feet. But that ball went up, and her cousins sat and spiked that ball. I called a timeout because one thing I had to get poor Regina off the floor, and we're all cheering. If we would have had the bucket of water to dump on her, we probably would have. Because that moment, she stepped in front of the ball, coming from that serve where everybody else had been dodging it because it was so hard. She took it, and we got the point. That changed the atmosphere of that game and the attitude of our team. We no longer pledged dodge the serve. We stepped in front of it even if it hurt. 
And those balls got up, and our team got them over. And in the end, we won. We won because we cheered every attempt. I remember there's team on their sidelines as we're cheering. I was forced by the end, said, does she realize we got that point? And I said, yes, I realize you got the point, but she got the ball. She wasn't letting it hit. They got the point, but our girls, little by little, because of little raging, got courage enough for the next ball and courage enough for the next ball. So here's our attitude, and here is what happened to them. They quit trying. Their best players asked to be pulled from the game and set on the sideline. Now remember, it was a double elimination. So we won. But that meant they could challenge us again because the rules are we would have to beat them a second time to win. Their coach came and said, can we make this a draw and each of us win? And the leader said, no. You either need to play or you can forfeit. And she looked at her team and they said, we will not play them again. And walked off the court. Our battle was won because we stayed in the game. And our attitudes, building on each other, kept our plane of flight. We became the winners of that, not because we were the best players, but we had courage. And all of those girls learned something that day. They learned that it wasn't how big you are or how big the giants you face. But it's that you just step in front of them. You don't give up. You take the hits and you keep getting up. And yes, you have bruises the next day. But your life will keep going. Um, it was an amazing weekend for these kids. And if you're in Cordova, you even have pictures because. Austin Carter, I think his name is Austin. It's been 20 years, so I'm trying to think, 12 years or so. Anyway, he was our official photo taker, and he was, it was wonderful for him taking all of the photographs because it was a meaningful time in their life as they all went to the altar and prayed, as they all heard God's voice, they all believed in who they were. And we had two boys, I think, make the alternate team, and I think Mr. Will won the sportsmanship award, and our team won the sportsmanship team. Because Cordova 
One of the kids said, they might knock you down, but they're the first to pick you up and say that they're sorry. It was a good, clean game, and they had a lot of fun. You see, that's life. Sometimes you get knocked down, and sometimes you knock other people down. What's your attitude going to be? Are you going to be big enough to say, hey, I'm sorry, and help them up? Or are you going to leave the court and not even play and lose the championship? As I go to wrap up, I want to give you a verse from the New Testament. You find it in, um, oh goodness gracious, it's Ephesians. It's not in my notes, I'm glad I remembered that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. And here's what it says. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old self sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, through righteous, tr truly righteous and holy. Put it on. So this week, as we look earlier on in Ephesians, it's not the people who put on the Christ attitude that we hear about. You can read about them, but that's not you and that's not me. That's not us. That's not David. David did not put on Saul's armor. David put on what God had for him. He renewed his thoughts and his attitude. Putting on the new nature. Put it on this week. Created to be like God. Truly righteous. So let's do an attitude check this week. I'm not saying that everybody in my house has a stinky attitude, but I'm saying when I wake up, sometimes I do. <laughs> I don't have the right to be the attitude police for Richard and Taylor, or for Kimmy, or for Junior, or for Rick. That's not my role. Because that's not what God gave me. It's really easy for us to get stuck and have us be the attitude checker. And it's not. The only, only attitude that we can change, the only attitude would help us be able to stand after the horrors of Holocaust or your home being taken away, everything lost. Everything can be taken away from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude 
in any given set of circumstances. She blessed the sweet. Richard, okay. 